Now, as we take this up, I want us to look at uh, how it begins here. It says, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So here it is, the day of Pentecost. We know that uh, just in the preceding part of this chapter, that the Spirit had now been sent. And the Spirit had come upon these 12 apostles that were gathered in one place. And those who were until this day quite fearful, hiding, locked rooms, secret meetings on small occasions. When the Spirit comes to them, as Jesus said, they would be clothed with power from on high. And they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. This is what happens this day. And so this is the day that the Spirit is sent. Indeed, it says that they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak. He took them from, from a place of fearfulness to now a fearlessness. That they would stand there with a brazen boldness and even an audacity to declare that these people that they're talking to are guilty of killing the Lord Christ. I mean, that's a, it's a strong thing. He, he's not only going to declare the fact that Jesus was the Christ, that there is no salvation apart from Jesus. He's not going to simply declare to them the truth of salvation, the one of salvation, the way of salvation. He's also going to, in the midst of it, that declare to them their guilty standing and guilty position. Generally speaking, people don't like that. When you tell someone they've done something wrong, they don't like it. And that's even when you tell them, you know, what you said, I think it was not right for you to say that. This, what he's not, what he's accusing them of is not merely saying something wrong, having kind of an inappropriate attitude and response. He's accusing them of Actually murdering the Son of God, the blameless one, the righteous one, the only hope of any and all of mankind unto salvation. And they handed him over and had him killed by lawless men. Now what I want us to begin to see in this is these 11. We, we, it, it really builds from where we were at. These 11 were men that were uniquely marked out. Remember, Jesus at times had a host of disciples who were following him, and many of them were called disciples. He had at that, when we've looked at this, he had spent an entire night in prayer to the Father, and he came down to his gathered disciples, and he marked out 12 of them who would be his apostles. Now, that's it's an important term. Remember, because an apostle is a delegate, it is a uniquely authorized and sent one. It was one who, when that person goes, they take a message from one place and they communicate that message in another place. And that message is to be received from the person communicating it, not on the authority of the person communicating it. He's merely a messenger. But they are to receive that message on the authority of the one who sent them. So to reject those messengers is to reject the one that sent them. 
which is not unlike, we already looked, that Jesus was the supreme apostle. To reject him was to reject the Father who sent him. And these men would be especially equipped by the Spirit to carry on this work. They could do it in a way that was distinct from you and I. Now, though we don't like to acknowledge it, we can err. We can make mistakes. We can, though we don't want to, teach something that's not accurate. And I can share that from personal opinion. I'm aware of things that years and years in the past in my youth, when I think back on some of the things I taught, thank you, you are a merciful God. Because we continue to grow. Where with the disciples, that would not be the case that they would err. They would not err because they were promised by Jesus that he would send the Spirit when he went. And that the Spirit would lead them into all truth. Therefore, what we receive from the apostles is all truth. Indeed, not unlike the rest of the scripture, as, as Peter speaks of, how holy men of God were carried along, born along by the Holy Spirit. That's how we got the scriptures. That's how we got the New Testament scriptures. The first thing when I'm talking about simple principles of spirit-filled preaching is that it has a singular source. There is one source of this, this of, of all true spirit-filled preaching. That source is it comes from God. Now, remember this. Jesus, when he was on earth, he said, I don't speak of mine authority, but what I'm told, that I speak. We go on and we also recognize that the spirit is, is, is the same way. Just a few verses out of the gospel of John to draw our minds to this. In John 14, verse 17, God's word says this. As Jesus speaks to those apostles, even the spirit of truth... Now, what's interesting in, in each of these occasions is he's preparing these apostles for their apostolic work and office. He uniquely uses the phrase repeatedly for them, spirit of truth, spirit of truth, spirit of truth. Now, I would say predominantly we don't refer to the spirit that way today. Would you agree with that? We tend to say the Holy Spirit. And I in no way will ever deny or minimize the holiness of the spirit. But there is something important about understanding the spirit of truth. Because it was this spirit who carried along the holy, apostles, uh, the holy prophets of the Old Testament. So that they gave to us the word of God. Faithful, infallible, inerrant. How do we know that? Because it was given them by the spirit of truth. Indeed, when we, when we look at this and when we study the subject of bibliology, the subject of the doctrine of the scripture, one of the things that's interesting is that it tells us in Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, or all scripture is God-breathed. And it's important for us to note that because it doesn't say um, God breathed on the apostles and then they wrote the scripture. It actually communicates the inspiration or the breathing of God directly to the scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. People like to rise up and say, well, men wrote it down and men can make mistakes. 
Yes, left to themselves. Men can and do make mistakes. That's why uniquely and extraordinarily they receive the Spirit in a way that He would lead them into all truth. Oh, that we had the Spirit in the same way and the same measure that they did. Can you imagine that? There would not be denominations. There would not be groups with a diversity of practices and a diversity of beliefs and a diversity. All that would be washed away if we also were able to be led into all truth. Now note, we're not hopeless in this endeavor because the Spirit led them into all truth. So that all truth is available for us. It's right there in the word of God. And what would unite us once again is if God would grant us the grace to overcome the baggage of our, of our mental struggles at times with the, with the challenging aspects of God's word. God would grant us the boldness to rise above certain traditions and patterns that have been passed on by men and say, no. We again in every generation need a reformation. A time where we return to the word of God. Where we look at the scripture and we look at what we do. And when we see there's a difference between what we're doing and what we're believing and what the scriptures teach. We cast off our way and we grip the word of God. Unshakably. It says this in John 14, 17. Let me try to get into this. Uh, Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. What a wonderful promise that they're receiving. John 15, he's going to expand on that. John 15, 26 and 27. When the helper comes whom I will send you from the father, the spirit of truth. Who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness. Because you have been with me from the beginning. That unique experience that they would have. Where the Holy Spirit would bear witness to them. In an extraordinary way. Directly communicating to them the words of God. And then they would then bear witness On his behalf. They who have been with him from the beginning. They would bear witness of all that they had seen and heard. We already looked in the previous week. The thing that distinguished someone who would be an apostle. Is he had to have been taught directly by Christ. That he he had to be one who had seen the risen Christ. And he had to be appointed an apostle by Christ. Which is one to speak on his behalf. John 16 is going to expand on it. Listen to this. John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears. He will speak. So again. And, and these, these are challenging notions. So when Jesus was incarnate. He, he says of himself. I do not speak of my own accord, but all the Father gives me that I speak. The Spirit, when he comes, likewise, is not going to just speak on his own, but what he hears, that he will declare. Again, it's it's talking to us about the, the unity of God. Further, I want us to note this. Jesus says, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
You're going to see that uh, where the Spirit of God is powerfully active, Christ is preeminent. Christ is spoken of with regularity, with consistency, because Christ indeed is the full revelation in whom the glory of the God had bodily dwelt in him. Further, he's the exact image and representation of the Father, so that he who has seen me who has seen the Father. And so there is in the scriptures a, that, that Jesus would have preeminence in all things, where the Spirit is active. And this is one of the things that, that's important, where the Spirit is powerfully active. In, in some of the churches, without wanting to cast too much opinion, but as we want to be wise and discerning through the scriptures, uh, it, it, it's possible for certain groups that want to recover a de-emphasis that's taken place on the Holy Spirit in our day and age. They emphasize the Holy Spirit. And what begins to happen is, and they speak of themselves as, as maybe having more of the Spirit than other churches have, and something begins to go amiss that you're hearing more about the Spirit and the activity of the Spirit and the movement of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit, and you're not hearing much about Christ. And I just want to remind us of this. Where the Spirit really is present, really is active, really is filling and powerfully working, He's going to be turning people's minds. He's going to be declaring the things of Christ. So, so there will be a Christ emphasis where the Spirit is extraordinarily present. Much like it's, it's, not, it's not to dislike again Jesus in his incarnation. Who was he constantly deflecting the glory to and deflecting the, the attention to? My Father who is in heaven. My Father who is in heaven. The same thing, the Spirit is there bringing glory to Christ. And when glory is given to Christ, glory is then also given to the Father. Um, he goes on to say this, he will not speak of his own authority. What he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14 of, of John 16, he will glorify me. The priority of glorifying Christ. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is what the apostles would receive. Continued direct instruction from Christ. And then by the grace of God, they would write it down so that we also have direct authoritative instruction from Christ for us. Goes on and says, all that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, the same thing we see of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's, he's the one kind of apostle out of time. Remember, he ultimately is even the last one qualified to be an apostle. We saw 1 Corinthians 15, 8 says of the resurrection appearances of Christ, even the, the post-ascension appearances of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 8 says he appeared last of all to me. We remember Ananias had met him and said it has been granted to you to see the righteous one, and to hear his voice. So Paul was also going to be extraordinarily equipped for that role of apostleship, where he would receive his message directly from God. It is a singular source. You see it even in the language of Paul. Every time we have the Lord's Supper, with great frequency, we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. And he begins that statement, 
For I received from the Lord that which I deliver unto you. And that, that really is the constant ministry of the apostles. I received from the Lord that which I delivered unto you. Remember, we've seen that the word apostles even used in smaller ways where the church would send apostles or messengers, messengers of the churches, not messengers of Christ. And they would go from the church to Paul. And, some, and they would take what they have received from the church and deliver it to him. Could be letters explaining troubles they're having. Could also be funds that they've sought to deliver. But they carried that on. That, that absolute submission to not add a single thing to themselves. One of the things on this principle that, that always runs through my mind is uh, my family, we, we happen to be in Mauritius during 9-11, the original 9-11, when those towers crashed down. And uh, being in a foreign country at that time, one of the things that the U U.S. Embassy in that country did is it contacted all the American citizens and it brought them together for a, a, a special time of communicating with them. And those people, they are a delegation from the government. And one of the things that, that just struck me as they spoke and then as people questioned them and as they continued to respond, first of all, they shared not from their own feelings and experiences. They read the letter that was, that was given to them from the State Department, from the president. They read that letter. Then when they were being asked questions, instead of saying, well, you know what I think is... Um, well, how do, how do some of you guys feel about this? None of that was there. What they continued to do is say this. It is the present. It is the position of the present administration to do this. It is the position of the White House that we will do this. It is the decision of the government that we. And I sat there and I think. Do they not get to. Do they have no authority to say anything on their own? And the answer is no. They didn't, and if they do step out and say things on their own, you know, uh, to make everyone feel better, the White House is going to give lollipops to every American in the world. Um, will the White House have to make good on that promise? White House didn't make that promise. That lunatic made that promise, and they have no right to, to make a promise that was not given. Actually, if they've made a promise that did not come from the center, you think they're going to be in their position long? No, you don't belong there because you're speaking from your own desires or you're trying to please the people or cater to them. Do your job. Your job is simple. We send you the message. You deliver the message. That's what the apostles did. And so when we want to say, what does God say? We open up the word. What would Christ have me do? How would he have me live? How is anyone saved? What are we to believe about end times? What are we to believe about spiritual gifts? What are we to believe about anything? The answer is this. What are we to believe? What does he say? It is the position of God that we believe like this.
You know, the world likes to say, and you probably heard it so many times, you know, um, I, I heard it described this way by someone. Uh, picture an umbrella, you know, on the top, the little nub, that's heaven. But there's all kinds of different, you know, there's a wire here and a wire here and a wire. They're coming from different sides and different angles. That's like different religions. Where do they all end up? At the top of the umbrella. See, so that's how it's going to be. Religions are going to all end up in heaven. It's all going to work out fine. See, the problem is, that's true about umbrellas. You know, that's not true about something else. It's not true about a lot of other things. It's not true, for example, about driving. Yeah, I can take any road I want. You know what? I'm going to get out here, and though I want to go to Dallas, I'm going to hit the 20, and I'm going east. Because eventually, it'll get me there. Now, somebody, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, somewhere there's a smart aleck who, who, who's, yeah, you keep going, eventually you'll get there. You won't. There's not a road that's going to take you all the way east, then across the ocean, then across other continents, across more oceans. It ain't going to happen. I'm not talking about hovering. There's, there's a way to get there. And now, yes, we've got secondary roads and side roads and other, other kinds of ways. But listen, the truth and eternal glory is not even merely like many roads. There are many roads, but there is one road that leads to life. And it is narrow. And the scripture doesn't say, yes, sometimes if you want to take a side road, a frontage road, that's fine. It doesn't. What does it say? Turn neither to the left nor to the right, but continue on the way. That's the constant pattern. Well, how do I know which is the way? These people and this church is saying this is the way. And this church is saying this is the right way. So how do I know? You don't listen to churches, per se. You listen to God's word. You have to have a Berean spirit. By Berean spirit, I mean what happened when Paul came and de delivered the gospel to the Bereans? They searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. On and on. Paul says, I did not receive Galatians 1.12. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a singular source of truth. And that shouldn't be surprising to us. That it's delivered to us by the spirit of truth. Jesus himself in the Gospel of John is described as what? The way, the truth, and the life. I ask you, is there another way? Is there other truth? I mean, don't you have your truth and I have my truth and people in other countries have their truth? I'm sure you've heard it before. The world's liking this idea of varied truths there's one truth. What about life? Is there any other way to life? Is there any other hope of avoiding the second death? There's no other way. You know, it, 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 even uh, in the Old Testament at times, uh, 
it says things like this. Is there any other God? I know not one. We can go even further and simply not only say, is there any other way? It's not only, oh, I know not one. It's, there is not one. There is, it's like there is no God beside God. There is no Savior beside Christ. There is no grounds for solid spiritual truth in our day and age apart from the Word of God. That's where we have to stay. It is a singular source. Uh, again, says this in Ephesians 3 and following, uh, 3, 3 and following, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse 4 says, when you read this, you will perceive the, my insight into the mystery of Christ. The apostles, by revelation, would have true and authoritative insight in the mysteries of Christ. And you know how we would get that insight? By reading this. Just like the first century church did. Oh, how wonderful. So strong it can be that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 and following, Paul can say this. If anyone teaches different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the words that we get from the apostles, they are sent by who? That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, you, anyone who thinks he's a prophet or spiritual has to acknowledge that what I write to you is a command of the Lord. Whoever does not acknowledge that, he is not to be acknowledged. That's a powerful source. So strong that the, the issue arose in uh, 3 John. It says this of Diotrephes. It says this, I have written something to the church but Diotrephes, who was a leader in the local church, an established local church leader, a man of influence, probably the local predominant preacher because he seemed to like to be heard. Diotrephes, it says, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Doesn't matter what a position a man may have in a church. Whether it's real positions of, of pastor elder and real positions of, of leader teacher. Or whether it's made up positions in, in quasi churches as cardinals, which is more of a bird, you know. Or pope, which I don't even know what that actually is. Um, but the, these things, it doesn't matter. What, do we what does everyone have to do? Anyone has to recognize the apostles had authority because their authority was given to them by Christ. Everyone else, we don't put ourselves first. We put Christ first and we submit to the instruction and authority. That's why when it comes to us, now that was the singular source for the apostles and we have that same and similar source. And how do we know this? says this in 2 Timothy 4.2, as Paul is instructing Timothy, Timothy is the next generation, right? You have the apostles, and then you have the generation that follows them. See, uh, for the apostles themselves, they would receive their teaching directly from God, and, the, and they would write that, it down in letters, and they would teach that faithfully. But then to Timothy, he's told this in, in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. In season and out of season. Preach the word. 
It's that singular source. Spirit-filled preaching, it begins by a submission and commitment to what the Spirit of truth has given us. If you go a different direction, it's not the way to go. Again, when we, when we study the scriptures, remember, and we've, we've talked about at times, you have the armor of God. Right? You have the breastplate and you have the helmet of salvation. You have all these different pieces. But when it comes to that offensive weapon, when it comes to that, that weapon that is able to cut, that is able, able to wound, able to prune, how many offensive weapons were there? There is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? Which is the Word of God. That is what is to be preached. That the way that it's said even more simply for us who, are say, who, who, who um, want more clarity. It says this, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the pattern. Christ directly to the apostles. The apostles faithfully to other men. Men faithfully teaching the word of the apostles to other men. And that's how it's to continue to go on throughout the generations. But thankfully, someone will say, but where are we going to get the words of the apostles? There's nobody hears directly from them anymore. Yeah, God took care of that, didn't he? He caused it by his own perfect wisdom to be written down. That's why he can speak in Jude of the, the um, gospel once for all delivered to the saints. We got it. The scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. The scriptures that equip you for every good work. Oh, we have that Spirit-filled preaching has a singular source. Now, I want to move on to the second idea here. I, I guess one more thought in that. Not only apostle to the next generation to Timothy, but on down to subsequent generations when it's establishing those men who would be leaders in local churches. It says this in, in Titus chapter 1 verse 9. Of those who are going to be put into the office of eldership. That's overseer. We commonly call them pastors today. Um, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Yeah, but what if he disagreed with something that Paul taught? Yeah, then he can't be put in the office. What if he has a different view than the apostles had? He's not fit. He must hold to the trustworthy word as taught. It was never expected that somehow in subsequent generations as centuries go by that we would, we would have different doctrine today than they had then. It's to be the same in every generation. Much like the one who has given it to us and who is our Savior. He is the same and we know this, right? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, does that sound boring to you? It should sound glorious to you. 
because he's unchanging in his majesty. He's unchanging in his promises. He's unchanging in his power. He's unchanging in his purposes. It is wonderful that he's unchanging. And it's also so helpful to us because we don't have to have, you know, our ear uh, or finger on the pulse of the generation. No. As it's going to say later, you must be saved from a crooked and perverse generation. (laughs) What's going on in the world is not what we listen to. It's not what we conform to. It's not what we attempt to do. One of the things I remember reading a number of years ago, um, and I think it was, it may have been from R.C. Sproul, he was bemoaning the fact that so many churches today, their commitment is not to feed the sheep. It's, I think his idea was that they've abandoned feeding sheep in order to entertain goats. And that's a sad, sad testament Now, he was stating it generally as what some do, you know. Uh, But that's something we do want to avoid. Let's go on further. Beyond having a singular source, which for them was Christ, for us is the apostles from Christ, which is now the word of God. And so the second thing that you're going to see in what I would call or second principle in spirit-filled sermons, is not, on, not only they, do they begin with and are rooted in the scripture, but they're scripture saturated. They, because, remember, the word of God, we want to teach the whole counsel of God. As it says in Acts chapter 20, all of the things that fit together. It's, it's, it's not poaching a little bit here and poaching a little bit there. You know, it, it, it's not as um, I remember way back when I was in my preaching class, uh, the, the teacher giving this example uh, said um, that he attended a service one time where a man said, open your Bibles to this verse. And he began to read the, read the verse, the very first sentence of it. There was a man. Don't read any further. Now close your Bibles. And here's the sermon. There was a man. Maybe he would talk about a man going to India as a missionary. There was a man. Maybe he would talk about a martyr who did this. And and all of a sudden, what you have is an amazing speech that's quite inspirational based on the theme, there was a man. But is that the scriptures? Is that the word of God? I mean, people could be maybe stirred and maybe they could weep and maybe they could be inspired. But in the end, are they edified? Are they built up in the most holy faith? It ought to be scripture saturated. And the way the way that I see that in this particular sermon we see by Peter is not only do we have that it's apostles giving to us. So we know that it has a singular authority, but you can see that this sermon is scripture saturated in Acts chapter two. I'm going to have to go quick on this, so follow with me if you can. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17 to 21, he quotes Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. So as he's preaching, he's saturating with scripture, and he's not done there. Then he goes, Acts chapter 2, verse 25 to 28, he quotes out of Psalm 16, verse 8 to 11. Still in the same sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 34 and 35, he quotes from Psalm 101, verse 1. Still not done, 
In Acts chapter 2, verse 40, he quotes the last part of Joel chapter 2, verse 32. So it's just scripture saturated. It's not, it's not my feeling. It's not my thoughts. It's not my opinions. And also what I want you to note is this. He's not, he's not prepared. And this is, this, is, this is what often happens. You know, I, I, one of the responsibilities I have is to teach young men uh, and equip them for the ministry. And so we have that seminary in India and I go there. And it's, it's not uncommon there a young, uh, among young men and even in other places for, for men to sometimes sit down and think, okay, what do I want to teach? What do I want to preach? Um, I want to preach on forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness should be... Uh, and, you know, and, they, and they make their three points. Forgiveness should be like this. Forgiveness should be like that. Forgiveness should be like that. Maybe good points. And then they open their Bible. Now, where can I find some scripture to kind of use to support my point? Okay, when we're talking about spirit-filled preaching, it's not using the scripture to make your point. It's being used by the scripture to make its point. <laughs> That's what we want to do, is be used by the word of God. And so what's wonderful is, yes, he uses a lot of, and speaks of a number of passages here, and they're all pertinent. And what he does with each one of these as in, his, in a scripture-saturated message is he tells what it says, and then he teaches what it means. And it's particularly necessary here because, uh, I mean, there are some prophecies some prophecies which can be a little bit challenging and seemingly obscure in their meaning and so he declares it and to some extent he explains it now he may not explain it thoroughly at that point because he's emphasizing a certain aspect of it because i'll tell you this in terms of preaching you can't comprehensively cover everything you might want to in a singular message it's hard to do that and i don't know if i could get you to stay <laughs> You tell what it says and you teach what it means. You know, it, that's really what's even going on in this passage. In chapter 2, verse 12, they were all perplexed and amazed and said, What does it mean? There's this desire to know what the word of God means, but this is what was uttered through the prophet. In Acts 2.25, it says, for David says concerning him. Acts 2.34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself. Further, I, I would really say it's also um, exegesis and exhortation. Two things are there because it says this in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and, to, and continued to exhort them. All right. So there's exegesis, which is bringing out and explaining what it means. And there's exhortation, telling what to do. So you... Tell what it says, you tell what it means. After you tell what it means, you say what it means to me. What it means in my life. What it means I should believe. What it means I should do. How I should live, how I should worship, how I should speak. Spirit-filled preaching is all about setting forth the will of God. As revealed in the word of God. Look. And not every passage of scripture. Is as interesting to you and me. As other passages of scripture. 
And it's a sad thing that many pastors in this day and age think that, oh, it's got to be interesting. It's got to be inspiring. I've got I've to, you know, uh, this is kind of a little bit of, I don't know, it really doesn't do a lot. So I'm going to add a sweet story in there that'll evoke some tears. You know, I'm going to add, I'm going to, I'm going to, I got to do something to enhance this so that I don't lose the people. God help us. It really should be, look, all is profitable. Now, they're not all the same degree profitable, but it's all profitable. And so this may protect you from something, and this may add a little bit. And sometimes it's leaps and bounds and jumps, and sometimes it's incremental steps. But we need it all. All right, I want to go on to my third point. There's only five today. All right. The third point is spirit-filled sermons are doctrinally deep. I was speaking to a young man recently who was telling me about an experience that he had in a, in a previous church scenario. And he said, you know, it's, it's like a lake that's about a mile wide and an inch deep. That's not good. That's not healthy. I mean, generally speaking, I know we've probably all seen those kind of crazy things where, where the guy climbs up to the top and then there's like a kiddie pool at the bottom and he's getting ready to jump in. Have you ever seen those kind of things? How many of you have thought, wow, that looks fun. Why don't they put that at every park? I want to do that too. No, that doesn't sound good at all. If, 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 if all you get is the superficial, how helpful is, is it going to be? I mean, if you take a child and you teach him his ABCs and he learns his alphabet and he memorizes his alphabet, but you never teach him how to put those alphabets together to form words. What good is that? You know, and, and, and if you have for years and years, you have you, you gather people together and all they do week after week is learn their ABCs. You know, they might be pretty good at that song. But when someone asks them to spell this out for me. Lay this out for me, write this out for me. Look, I don't know about all that stuff, but I loved alphabets. You know, that's kind of what people tend to say. Well, I don't know about all that stuff, but I love Jesus. I don't know about all that doctrinal stuff, but I love. Well, Jesus says in the Great Commission, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. Somehow we think the Great Commission is, 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 is the basics of the gospel. We done with you now, you saved. No! That's the very beginning point. And then you teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Until there is entire discipleship. So that the man of God may be mature. Complete in every good work. It's got to happen. It has to be doctrinal deep, doctrinally deep. And I will say that in this, in this context. He begins with serious doctrinal deepness. He's dealing with prophecies. And fulfillments in Christ. Prophecies that really until this day remained a dark mystery to people. Who is David talking about? Himself or someone else? 
I don't know who David was talking about. I mean, it didn't make sense to me. I will not abandon his soul to corruption. I don't know what that's about. Um, resurrection? It's about the resurrection. No, well, no, it's about Jesus. Well, how did they know that? They wouldn't. But this, it, again, it is taking those things that God has revealed and then making them clear, doctrinally deep, expounding and explaining and applying the prophecies so that we understand things. Not only the prophecies, the scriptures do not even hear, even here, we might call this one of the first sermons of the New Testament church, right? The church, that, as the new covenant is poured out upon the church that day, I will give you my spirit and he will write upon your heart and mind. Here it is unfolding. And right in this very first sermon, he deals with the doctrinal depth that absolutely mystifies men even today of God's absolute sovereignty. And even God's absolute sovereignty Oh, even over the sinful acts of men. What? That doesn't make sense. To, according to my philosophy, those are inconsistent. Well, listen to what it says in chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up. Now, when you're first reading this, you're going to think he's going to say what? Delivered up by you, wicked fellows. But no, he actually changes the direction initially, doesn't he? Delivered up. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The absolute sovereignty of God, even over what is going to momentarily be defined as the wicked acts of these men. How can God be sovereign and yet they're still evil? That would make God the author of evil. People say that. And so here's their answer. Yeah. So uh, God is not sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over most things, but he just kind of lets the evil happen. He, it's not that he's planned it or determined it. He just kind of shrinks back from it. So now we've saved God from the guilt over evil, right? Yeah, but you've denied the scripture. So, you know, you've saved your, uh, your uh, ability to understand it. And you're feeling more, more comfortable with it. But you're now not believing the scripture. This happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God not only knew it in advance, he purposed it in advance, and he planned it. He knew it was going to happen. Could he not stop it? Poor God. No, he could have stopped it, but it was his definite plan. But his definite plan involved murder, and murder is evil. It involved the murder of an innocent one that's evil. I don't understand how the, uh, a sovereign and holy God could predestine, ordain, plan, decree things that are sinful and wicked. And my answer to that is, you are exactly right. You don't understand. And maybe I don't understand, but that's okay. Because remember, Isaiah tells us God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth are his ways above our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. But the reality is this. When he tells us this is what he did, we don't defeat the scripture in order to sustain what we consider more reasonable. Our reason is applied in, it, in the fullness to say, to, to determine, what does this say? 
And once we have applied the best of our hearts and minds and study and endeavor and earnest prayer to understanding what this says, then you know what we do? We say, this is true. Absolutely true. I mean, even within this, and we'll probably expand on this more in, in time to come, but it even says things like this. Uh, at the end of verse, at verse 21, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? So everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But who will call upon the Lord? Strangely enough, it tells us that down in verse 39. This promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Wait a second, now you're really confusing me. So do we call upon the name of the Lord, or does he call us to himself? Yes. <laughs> we call upon the name of the Lord because he's called us to himself. Those whom he has called by his grace poured out upon him, call out on him. Both are there. The scriptures don't shy away from the absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute responsibility of man. Even if we have trouble putting the pieces together, sometimes because we have trouble putting the pieces together, we'll just, all right, I'm going to skip that chapter because it says a few things that are, uh, <laughs> no, own it. Because remember, who gave it, who gave us this? God. Well, I'm going to pass that up. You know, that's confusing. That might start a fight in the church. No, no, no. The scripture says all scripture is profitable. So if that scripture is going to start a fight, and that fight needs to happen, that's a profitable fight. It's a fight between truth and error. And Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians, when you gather together, I hear that there is some fighting and dissension among you. And I believe it in some part. Indeed, there has to be factions among you so that we can determine that which is genuine. You know, we should never be satisfied as the world says this. Well, agree to disagree. No, we'll agree to continue to love each other while we're not in agreement. But let's not agree to disagree. Let's agree to continue to search the scriptures until we all come to a knowledge of the truth. Right? Oh, our time is up. All right, so I'm just going to blurt out the, the last ones. All right. Number four, courageous in content. Doctrinally deep and courageous in content. Why is courageous in content? He's going to be telling them, you killed him. This is something that can get them in trouble. When Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, ready in season and out, he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. You know, preaching teaches today, uh, classes today in seminary kind of veer away from rebuke and reprove and sort of um, entertain, engage, um, encourage. Well... There's nothing wrong with encouraging. That's there too. Encouragement, counsel, instruction, training in righteousness. But I think there is a reason why the Spirit of God through the Apostle listed reproof and rebuke first. Because that's the most fearful ones to do. 
courageous in content. And that's what these men became this day and did not shy away from. And then lastly, earnestly expansive. And it's accidental, but this does serve as an example of this. Back to 2 verse 40, it says this. Some people say, well, if this is a spirit-filled sermon, I can read Acts chapter 2 verse 14 to 41 in approximately five or less minutes and you my friend went beyond five or six minutes i did listen to what it says in verse 40 and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So this is not the totality of his sermon. It is a sample of the substance of his sermon. But with many other words. Sometimes my mind goes back to what it says in Nehemiah 8. When they gathered together and opened the word. From early morning until noonday. And they just had reading after reading and sermon and explanation after explanation. Um, when they gathered together with Paul and he... he, he extended his words till midnight and poor Eutychus fell out the window. You know, and, and in my mind, you think, oh boy, he clearly went too long. He goes out, gets Eutychus up, brings him back in, and it says he continued talking with them till daylight. It's like he didn't get the message. You just killed someone preaching too long, and then you doubled your efforts. You know, uh, the, the scripture in many places talks about that, that wonderful expression. In Acts chapter 15, and I'll end with this one, it says Judas and Silas were themselves prophets. They encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. The New American Standard there says with a lengthy message, with a long speech. People get all, uh, get all worked up about these kinds of things. You know, if you go to a concert, who wants the concert to be done in five minutes? People don't even want concerts to be done in an hour. And that's probably because they paid so much for the tickets for that concert that they feel that they deserve more. But even further than that, when you're at a concert and they start playing a song on the album that you know, do you feel cheated? I already knew this one. I already knew this song. You know, why is he giving me a new song? No. When they play the song, you know, what do you often do? Yeah, I, I, I'm singing with that song. I'm joining. I'm enjoying it. May it be like that when we're here and preaching. It's not. I already knew that. I pretty much knew everything we heard today. Yeah. Join in. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. This is the way it, you know, it ought to be. Remember, Jesus even came back in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he speaks to his disciples and says, could you not? tarry with me but for just an hour jesus treated an hour like it was a a small amount of time but boy today that that preacher he'd be long-winded he just uh, you know now this again we you don't want to just not time for the sake of time i've been in in sermons where 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 the dear preacher clearly finished his sermon looked at his watch and realized Oh my goodness, I got to make up another 15 minutes here or people are going to. Ah. 
and and he, and 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 he, he's got his usual 15 minute filler sermon that that somehow gets tacked on to the end or he goes back and regurgitates all the things it's not about time the goal is not great duration but it's it's there's value in being earnestly expansive wanting to communicate the word of god so god's people get it i mean most of us go to college and we sit in college classes how many of your classes are 30 minutes sometimes you have evening classes how long are evening classes yeah i mean they test your endurance no doubt and like the 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 uh, apostles in the garden of gethsemane sometimes the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak that is understandable but as we're seeking to grow and seeking to have this instruction we need this so spirit-filled preaching simple principles these five things i see clearly laid out in this particular sermon one it has a singular source two it is scripture saturated three it is doctrinally deep four it is content courageous Five, it is earnestly expansive. Amen? Let's pray.